This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by Vincero Watches. Right now, listeners of the show can get 20% off their full order by going to vincerocollective.com and using the promo code CHEF at checkout. Watches can be insanely expensive. And watches are also something that I am very passionate about. Having a great watch on your wrist can be the key to how you run a kitchen efficiently, and I have worn a wristwatch every day of my adult life. And yes, of course, I want to buy a Rolex one day, but unfortunately, I don't have tens of thousands of dollars lying around. But I can go to Vincero Collective and find stunning wristwatches that have been designed by watch lovers just like me. By cutting out the middleman and selling directly to you through their site, they don't need to jack the prices up. If you're looking for a great watch at a great price, head on over to Vincero Collective and use the promo code CHEF at checkout. Tomorrow is the Super Bowl, and even if you don't like American football, it is a day that people gather to watch a game, watch commercials, and eat. Eating while watching sports like the Super Bowl is a time-honored tradition, and even though I don't like football that much, I will never turn down eating pizza and hot dogs and nachos and everything else I can think of to consume. But thinking about the upcoming Super Bowl made me think about where eating in stadiums comes from how far back in the history of food and sports really go. And as with all episodes of this show, I started looking into it, and it was a fascinating story of how this signature style of food came to be. And so, on this episode, we are going to talk about food in stadiums. And why? Because I'm Brian Clark, and this is Let's Talk About Chef. If we want to talk about food in stadiums, then we need to go back. Way back to the Roman Colosseum. When they weren't pitting gladiators against one another or even filling the gigantic stadium floor with water and reenacting entire naval battles, exotic animals from all over the Roman Empire, which was the entire known world at the time, would be brought in and would fight against one another or be hunted in front of thousands for sport. Everything from lions and ostriches to even elephants were brought into the stadium's labyrinth-like passageways underneath the main floor, and then they would be lifted up and killed. Sometimes tigers and lions would be starved for days leading up to an event so that they would be angry and pissed off and hungry and would try to kill the gladiators with more gusto. When these animals were eventually killed, royal chefs would then light huge barbecue pits and the animals would be cooked and the meat would be given out to spectators, making the first concession available in a stadium that of whatever was killed that day. 
It's kind of insane to think that going up to a stand and getting a hot dog started with a cook handing a chunk of lion meat to a fellow Roman. Now, sausages were made as far back as 64 AD, when Emperor Nero Claudius's chef Gaius stuffed pig intestines with ground meat one day when he was trying to figure out what to do with all this leftovers from a feast. The emperor loved the sausages so much that he is quoted as saying, I have discovered something of great importance. But the sausage goes even further back in history, and as far as 8th century BC, when Homer roasted Odysseus in his book, The Odyssey. And that quote was saying that he tossed and turned like a sausage, but with fat and blood. You have to remember that food and recipes were only transferred by word of mouth, and that happened for centuries. So it is entirely possible that the sausage never made its way to Roman kitchens until hundreds of years after Homer talked about it. But another way of looking at it is that the Emperor Nero probably just never ate them. Sausages would have been considered food for the poor, off cuts of meat stuffed into intestines and grilled. Emperors would never have been served ground meat that was left over with the most expensive and sought-after cuts like tenderloins and steaks being taken for the royalty, leaving the rest of the meat to be consumed by the lower class. So it makes sense that when Gaius invented sausages for Nero, he probably just took the idea from something he saw in a market and made it for the emperor, in the same way that lobster used to be for the poor until the rich got a taste for it. Now, sausages cousin hot dogs have long been served in stadiums, and even though I have devoted an entire episode to them, here is a quick recap. In the 15th century, the city of Frankfurt spawned the Frankfurter, a spiced and smoked sausage with a slightly curved shape. The Wiener, a sausage made of pork and beef, originated in Vienna, known in German as Wien, and that happened in 1805. Throughout the 19th century, the snack would soon become the hot dog, and that gained a following in America thanks to immigrants from Europe wanting to eat them. Now, I am well aware that my job is to worry about things like what distinguishes a hot dog from a Frankfurter or Wiener, and I'm quite happy about that. And that, my friends, is where the bun comes in. And its exact origins are kind of up for debate. Many hot dog historians, of which I guess I kind of am, credit Antoine Foudwanger, a St. Louis peddler who offered his customers white gloves along with their piping hot sausages to keep them from burning their hands. The problem was that everyone who took a sausage walked off with the gloves rather than returning them covered in sausage juice, and so his profits suffered. But around 1883, really strapped for cash, his wife came up with the ingenious solution of putting the sausage in a long, soft roll that was perfectly fit for it. And he dubbed the meat-bread combo Red Hots. Others point to Charles Feltman, a German butcher who in 1867 began selling hot sausages on rolls out of the pie wagon he hauled up and down the sand dunes of Brooklyn's Coney Island. Now, within a few years, he had expanded his business from one cart into a hot dog empire with an immense restaurant, a beer garden, and multiple stands. And business was booming until a bread slicer that worked for Feltman named Nathan Hanwerger broke away to open his own stand in 1916. And the way that he got so popular was by charging half the price per hot dog, five cents instead of ten, from his competitor and former boss. And now today, Nathan's famous hot dogs are sold in more than 20,000 food service and retail outlets across North America. And the name hot dog 
That came from a cartoonist that worked for the New York Post in 1901. He was at Coney Island trying to draw vendors selling a snack he had never seen before, a snack that the vendors were calling Dachshund Sausages, or Dash Hound Sausages. But the cartoonist couldn't spell Dash Hound, so he just wrote the vendors saying, get your hot dogs here instead, and that's where that comes from. Now, we might never know the exact origin of hot dogs, but we do know why they became so popular at baseball stadiums. It was actually a British immigrant named Harry Stevens who came to Ohio from London in the 1880s. And when he got to Ohio, he fell in love with baseball. One day when he was at a game, he saw that himself and everyone around him was starving, so he decided to open a business at the ballpark. And before long, Harry M. Stevens Incorporated was bringing hot dogs, soda, and peanuts to parks, not just in Ohio, but all over the country. In 1893, at the same fair that launched the hot dog to the world, Frederick Ruckenheim and his brother Louis ran a popcorn cart. Now, popcorn was great, but over the years they had started messing around with their recipe, eventually adding peanuts and molasses to try and stand out from the competition. But because popcorn was sticky, they had to store it in cardboard boxes and came up with the name Cracker Jack after a company spokesman's reaction to the first time he tried it. Cracker Jack became such a huge hit at the 1893 Expo that it soon started to show up at baseball games everywhere, and it became so popular that a 29-year-old vaudeville singer named Jack Norworth, even though he had never been to a baseball game in his life, name-dropped it in his new song, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Within a month of its release, Take Me Out to the Ball Game was the number one record in America, and Cracker Jack became synonymous with baseball. This episode of Let's Talk About Chef is being brought to you by the New York Times. Right now, you can get a digital subscription to the New York Times for 50 cents a week. That's $2 a month. You know what? Hey, Frank, what should we start to do? Start spreading the news. Head on over to nytimes.com. Peanuts have a long and terrible history. Spanish conquistadors exploring the New World were first introduced to peanuts in South America, most likely in Brazil and Peru. 
They took the peanut plant back home to Europe, and it quickly spread to Africa and Asia. In the 1700s, slave traders brought the peanut back across the Atlantic, using it as a cheap food source for African captives on their ships. They would toss handfuls and bags of peanuts into the holds of their boats to keep their enslaved captives alive on their journey across the ocean. Once back in America, plantation owners started to grow the peanuts to continue to feed livestock and to feed their slaves. The peanut continued to be a food for the poor until American Civil War, when troops on both sides of the conflict recognized the peanut as a cheap and inexpensive way to stay fed. After the war ended with the Confederate Army being defeated, demand for peanuts kept growing, and so vendors started to sell freshly roasted peanuts on street corners and markets, and eventually that led to selling paper bags of peanuts at baseball games. In the early 1900s, George Washington Carver, who was a renowned botanist and son of a slave, started to research peanuts as an alternative cash crop to cotton, and it's because of him that peanuts started to be grown all over the South. Other famous stadium food can be found all over the world, like strawberries and cream at Wimbledon. During the famous British tennis tournament, more than 20 tons of fruit, that's more than 2 million strawberries, and 1,820 gallons of cream are consumed as the event's signature dish. But why strawberries and cream? Legend dictates that King George V is responsible, but the New York Times has reported that the tradition dates to the era of the first Wimbledon tournament in 1877. Strawberries and cream are fashionable to eat, and it's seasonably available at the time that Wimbledon takes place. Now, Wimbledon's other iconic icon is champagne, which started out as its original beverage of choice, but that switched to the now iconic Pimm's Cup. The first Pimm's Bar at Wimbledon opened in 1971, its popularity grew, and today more than 80,000 pints of Pimm's and lemonade are sold there annually. Big Lee Chu got its start in 1977. That's when the Portland Mavericks pitcher Jim Boughton was sitting in the bullpen with teammate Rob Nelson, who noted it was too bad someone didn't make gum that looked like chewing tobacco. When the season was over, Boughton put money behind the idea, designed a pouch, and made some gum that they chopped up. 
Emerald Products, a novelty gum company in Illinois, launched Big League Chew in 1980, and it sold $18 million of wholesale products that year. As Bouton's site notes, the gum still sells today, having thankfully replaced chewing tobacco at many high schools and colleges. One of the most iconic stadium foods in America are garlic fries at AT&T Park in San Francisco. Garlic fries. Their invention is credited to Dan Gordon of Gordon Birch, who created the garlic and fries combination as a late-night stack during finals in grad school. The concession stands in the ballpark are infamous for smelling like garlic that wafts all over the stadium. Eating food and watching sports has been around for thousands of years. And now new stadiums are being built that are offering more and more elaborate ways of dining. Stadiums are realizing how popular food is in mainstream culture, and so in a lot of places they are shifting away from the hot dogs and nachos and building finer dining restaurants and areas for fans to be able to eat the best of what the city's chefs have to offer. Like, for example, Chicago's Wrigley Field. Every year they have a chef series which brings local celebrity and amazing chefs to the ballpark for their reinterpretation of ballpark classics, chefs like Stephanie Izzard and Rick Bayless. But stadiums all over North America and the world are starting to use menus to showcase the culture of dining that surrounds their stadiums and what their fans actually like to eat. And that's a cool thing. Chef culture is so prominent now that sports franchises are taking notice. So more and more amazing food is being offered where before maybe all you could get was a bag of peanuts. Now, I will always hold a place in my heart for the humble hot dog, but it's nice to see where all of this is going. The idea that not just a sports team, but the food and the cooks that make it are what can identify a city and a culture, that's a special thing. And I hope it doesn't go anywhere anytime soon. I hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Let's Talk About Chef. It was written by me, Brian Clark. If you want to write into the show, you can send everything to letstalkaboutchef at gmail.com or you can follow me on Instagram at Chef Brian Clark. I want to thank Vincero Watches and the New York Times for letting me talk about them, but more importantly, I want to thank you for listening. If you can do us a favor and tell someone that you would think would like the show, we can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. We will be back next week with another new episode, and so until then, as always, I'm Brian Clark, have a great service, and have a great week. <laughs>